Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are revisiting once again, Mr. Parker Pine, heart specialist. Catherine, what are we covering? We are covering the problem at Palenza Bay, Kemper. Oh boy. I have to say, and I should say this at the outset because it is going to frame this discussion, this is the last Parker Pine we will be covering for a while on this podcast. Control your tears, Catherine. I know they're flowing right now. <laughs> you know, as I've said before, the Arabian Nights of Parker Pine have been kind of enjoyable. And this is a, a, the final Arabian Night of Mr. Parker Pine because the final story will take place on domestic shores. And we are going to wait to cover that one until we are much further along in our podcast because we would feel bereft, I think, if we didn't have a Parker Pine to look forward to. But but yeah, let's talk a little bit about the publication history on this one. Catherine Brobeck, what can you tell us? So it was first published in our old friend, The Strand. Love yeah, The I Strand. Know, right? <laughs> in November 1935. And here's what's funny, Kemper. It was then only published in Problem at Palenza Bay and Other Stories by HarperCollins all the way in 1991. Interesting. Yeah. We've talked in the past about some of the other short story collections that were compiled in the 70s in particular. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a late addition to the uh, published paperback canon. Yeah. It, I mean, Problem at Palenza Bay and Other Stories is one of those catch-all grab bag sort of collections mm-hmm. that the Christie estate put out in latter days just to publish all of the major Christie stories and Problem at Palenza Bay was one of those outliers. Interestingly, my copy of Parker Pine Investigates, which was published by William Morrow, imprint of HarperCollins, in 2012, includes Problem at Palenza Bay. But that is not traditionally what the Parker Pine Investigates collection includes. Traditionally, that collection ends with the Oracle of Delphi, which we last covered, and it has 12 stories. But my collection has 14, so it has Problem at Palenza Bay. And then the final Parker Pine short story we won't be covering for a while, The Regatta Mystery, which is also a Poirot short story. So mm, can I get into that? You know, know, it it makes more sense, of course. To include this in Parker Pine Investigates. Yes, it's an oddity that these two stories were outliers. Although I believe that the Parker Pine Investigates collection was first published in 1934. So this one, you know, was published afterward, as I would wager the Regatta Mystery was as well. I don't have that information in front of me. But yes, it is odd that in future editions, they didn't do that until apparently the 21st century. I think traditionally they weren't included. But I'm glad that they have put all 14. It reminds me a little bit of how, you know, in The Mysterious Mr. Quinn, we have all of those Mr. Quinn short stories, but then those two outliers that aren't in the collection. So right. little bonuses, little surprises along the way. <laughs> it's what we live I for, mean, right, Catherine? Absolutely. Absolutely we do. All right. Well, let's talk about the victim, which is going to be very fast because this is a Parker Pine story, folks. And how this is such a Parker Pine story. Oh, my God. Chef's kiss. Is this a Parker Pine story? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is no traditional victim. So if anything, the victim is Catherine Brobeck. Let's move on to suspects. 
<laughs> Again, my number one suspect is Parker Pine. Fair. Totally fair. He's not even a suspect because we should just, when we're breaking down Parker Pine's story, say the culprit at the beginning because it's yeah, always no, no, Parker no. Pine. It's right. We know this in advance. So, yeah, it's a Parker uh-huh. Pine story. Parker Pine is the one who, you know, did it all. <laughs> Let's talk about the world as it appears to be, because Parker Pine, world-weary traveler that he is, we have seen him go so many different places across the Middle East. He was in Syria. He was in Iraq. He was in what he referred to as Persia. He was in Egypt. He was in Greece. He is now traveling to Mallorca. Which, you know, Mm. is a very popular vacation spot, or I suppose I should say holiday spot, for many a British person, isn't it? Yeah, and apparently it was in 1935, just like it is in, you know, the 21st century. Yeah, a very popular, dare I say, even cliched <laughs> well, you know, I, I imagine that in Parker Pine's time, there was less of that sort of early aughts club music sort of scene going on. Yes. Less of the Mykonos vibe to, to bring up <laughs> Greece again. I think there's a bit of a Mykonos vibe to Mallorca these days, perhaps. Unfortunately for him, as he is very much not the caliber of traveler that Mr. Satterthwaite is, speaking of the mysterious Mr. Quinn. Mr. Parker Pine arrives at Mallorca with no planning as to where he's going to stay. He is traveling by the seat of his pants, and Mallorca is booked up, and he's having a really hard time finding a suitable lodging. So he hires a driver who's going to take him from spot to spot around the island and go to different hotels to see what might be available. They go to various places in and around the island where there are fancy, expensive hotels available. And (laughs) there is a really funny exchange where the driver keeps on saying, oh, well, you don't want to go there because the prices are just crazy. And Parker Pine keeps on saying, "Okay, I I appreciate your opinion, but how much are they? And the driver says, a price incredible. And Parker Pine's like, "Okay, but what price exactly? So he basically bullies the driver into telling him what the price is. And Parker Pine's like, meh, that's not so bad. (laughs) Let's go there. However, a Along the way, they continue to stop to see if there are cheaper scenic places that may have any availability. And lo and behold, he happens upon something. Right. So it's called the Hotel Pinodoro, and it's a scenic but small establishment. He can't speak at all to the owners of this scenic hotel, but somehow they exchange money. The driver leaves him. He settles in and then he goes and gets, you know, additional coffee and a roll. And his second coffee and roll of the day. Yes, because he had one earlier in Palma. Who who could blame him, though? I mean, he's He's on vacation. Well, you know, it's like the it's the airport theory of the fact that when you see somebody at the bar at the airport that opens at Nine o'clock. What happens in the airport stays in the airport, Kemper. Absolutely. Anyway, he notices the other people at this hotel that currently consists of four Germans. It's a mother, a father, and two elderly daughters, which I thought was a really weird thing to say. Then also an English mother and a son who seem to immediately clock him for also being English. Subsequently, when the son goes away, Parker Pine notices a certain rigidity to the English mother that makes him immediately alarmed that they are having some mother-son drama. 
And so what does Parker Pine do, Kemper? He rushes to the hotel register that he'd signed in on to scribble over his name illegibly so that it reads Christopher Pine. Then he also notes that the mother and son are Mrs. R. Chester and Mr. Basil Chester of Home Park, Devon. I wasn't sure if Christopher actually is his first name because he signed it as C. Parker Pine in the register. I believe that somewhere in Parker Pine Investigates, isn't he called James Parker Pine? Yeah, it's really interesting. There are two previous Parker Pine short stories that we covered in which his name is definitely written as J. Period Parker Pine. One was in Have You Got Everything You Want, which was our first traveling Parker Pine short story in which we see him getting on a train at the Gare de Lyon in Paris, and the label on his suitcase reads J. Parker Pine. And then in Death on the Nile, which was actually the first Parker Pine short story that we covered, although it too is within those traveling Parker Pine stories in the latter half of the Parker Pine Investigates collection, he signs a note back to our victim, Lady Grail, as J. Parker Pine. Again, J. Period. But I was doing a little bit of digging into those previous stories just to see where the James is, and I couldn't quite find it. So if there is an eagle-eyed reader among our eagle-eared listeners who could point to the specific reference to James Parker Pine within the Parker Pine Investigates collection, I, for one, would love to hear it. But yes, I think we can say with reasonable certainty that his first name does begin with J and is almost definitely James and certainly not Christopher. He definitely does sign in as C. Parker Pine. I know, that's why it's so confusing because he definitely signs in as C. Parker Pine before all this business with Mrs. Chester and her son. So Christopher Pine is less recognizable as Parker Pine, but C. Parker Pine would seem to be a demi-alias of sorts, or else potentially it's just a continuity error within this collection. But as always, let's give Christy the benefit of the doubt and, uh, you know... Parker Pine is wrapping up his travels here and uh, likes to keep it on the down low. I actually thought the scene where Parker Pine notices the posture of this woman and the fact that she is in deep emotional pain to be sort of funny because he's, you know, he's drinking his coffee, he's finishing it up, and he's just glancing in this woman's direction. And this is what Christy writes. Instantly, he stiffened. He was alarmed, alarmed for the peaceful continuance of his holiday. That back was horribly expressive. In his time, he had classified many such backs. Its rigidity, the tenseness of its poise. Without seeing her face, he knew well enough that the eyes were bright with unshed tears, that the woman was keeping herself in hand by rigid effort. Moving warily like a much-hunted animal, Mr. Parker Pine retreated into the hotel, and then that's where he changes his name to Christopher Pine. He's just like, oh, no, 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 you are not ruining my vacation lady with whatever your problem is, because I am not interested in making you happy. Right. Absolutely. He also kind of tacitly acknowledges the drama that was going on in his Arabian Nights adventure. Yeah. Where he is essentially like, I've seen some stuff, people. I'm just going to chill here for a while. I, I I can't see anything else. Yeah, he's like, I've been through a lot on these travels, and I almost feel like this is Christy hanging a lantern, if you will, on (laughs) 
how weird it is. Yeah, how hard to believe it is that he would have this many cases as he's traveling. I bracketed this too because I thought it was really funny. Already it had been a source of abiding wonder to that gentleman that so many people he had come across abroad should know his name and have noted his advertisements. In England, many thousands of people read the Times every day and could have answered quite truthfully that they had never heard such a name in their lives. Abroad, he reflected, they read their newspapers more thoroughly. No item, not even the advertisement columns, escaped them. (laughs) Sure, sure. Right. (laughs) Sure, Jan. So Parker Pine continues to enjoy his stay. Like he changes his name and he does interact with the mother and son because there aren't that many people at the hotel and he is a polite person and they are too. They're all well-bred English travelers. Well, and also if we remember from earlier stories, Parker Pine only speaks English and French. So it's helpful to have one of those languages available for him. I feel like you throw a lot of shade at Parker Pine's linguistic skills, but he can speak French, Catherine. That's not nothing. Um, I can speak French, and I don't think that's that impressive, Kemper. <laughs> I'm not saying it's impressive. I'm just saying that I don't think there's any need to denigrate our poor Parker Pine. You know what? It's true. He could speak zero other languages. And you know what? That would be okay, too, because he can do his malicious practice that's probably illegal in England for English speakers, and that's fine and good for him. (laughs) Eventually, though, matters come to a head, and we all know where this is going from the moment that he observed Mrs. Chester nearly crying after her son left the table because eventually Basil leaves the table early during one of these nice little sojourns out on the terrace of the hotel. And Parker Pine is stuck with Mrs. Chester, who is clearly fretting about her son because they normally spend all of their time together. And while she is so worried that he doesn't have friends his own age. I guess it's just so weird that he likes to hang around his mother, but, oh, well, you know, we just have such a special relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Also, by the way, didn't we just see this in the Oracle Adelphi? Oh, I know. I totally thought that, too. It's a very similar relationship between these two. It's very similar to the relationship with the mother and son in Oracle Adelphi. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, she says that... Even though, yes, she would love for him to spread his wings a little bit, she doesn't want him to spend as much time as he is spending around these artist heathen monsters who just sort of lounge and lollygag about the hotel on the beach. And it's actually really funny how their appearance is described. Girls strolled about in trousers with brightly colored handkerchiefs tied round the upper halves of their bodies. I feel like that's mentioned a couple of times. Oh, for sure. That exact description is. Yes. Yeah. So just really imagining someone with like a hanky tied over their bosom and like lots of lipstick. So much lipstick. All the lipstick cover. And trousers. (gasps) I know. It was like one of my favorite throwaway lines in Black Coffee, which we talked about on our Patreon episode, that... The sister in that play smears on red lipstick because you never know when you're going to lose most of it. Scandalous. Especially especially in the back of a taxi. Yeah. But, you know, Parker Pine is not really so scandalized because he is not easily scandalized. And he very kindly tells Mrs. Chester that she should ignore most of, you know, the shenanigans going on with these artist heathen monsters in their handkerchiefs. And the men are wearing berets and they're all drinking a lot. And the men have long hair, which we know is always a major no-no in Christie. Right. But he says, you know, this is all kind of silly and 
she should leave well enough alone. And it's all fine at this point still because she doesn't actually know who Parker Pine is. Again, he has changed his name in the register and she just thinks that this is a fellow traveler with whom she is chatting. Until... Uh-oh. One day in the hotel, he runs into one Nina Witcherly. And you know what? Nina Witcherly is a bad person, Kemper, because <laughs> she very enthusiastically recognizes him and screams it to everybody in the vicinity who would possibly listen. He knows her and she knows of his reputation. And she's so excited to essentially meet like her famous friend in this random hotel that she just raves about him to Mrs. Chester. Um, You know, she tells him all about his advert, all about the fact that he's famous for Are You Happy? Well, what's really funny is that she gets it wrong because what she <laughs> right. says specifically is, haven't you read his his advertisements? Are you in trouble? Consult Parker Pine. I think it's really funny that Christy has her misquote. It's not in there, but I can see Parker Pine wincing. Like, that's not right. Well, he winces a lot in this story, so it would not actually be surprising. But based on Nina's raves, that evening, Mrs. Chester, unfortunately, pulls Parker Pine into a room post-dinner to wail about how her son's life is about to be ruined. Because remember those artist heathen monsters? He's involved with one. She is one of those girls who wears a kerchief as a top and pants and the red lipstick. And she swears. And when they ordered tea, she ordered booze instead. Oh, can't Parker Pine possibly help her save her son? Save my boy. Yeah. I know. Personally, I think ordering a cocktail instead of tea, I'm with her. (laughs) I find nothing wrong with that. But after kindly suggesting to Adela, that is uh, Mrs. Chester's first name, I feel like we came across that name for another matronly character recently in Taken Out the Flood. That was Lynn's mother, Adela Marchmont. I think Christy, it's, it's a matronly name. He suggests to Adela that perhaps she should remember that she too is a person, that Adela Chester is someone who deserves to enjoy her own life and she's more than just a mom. He's basically telling her the opposite of the message in one of my favorite Saturday Night Live commercial spoofs, Mom Jeans. So this Mother's Day, don't give mom that bottle of perfume. Give her something that says... I'm not a woman anymore. I'm a mom. He goes on this. It's not a rant. It's actually kind of charming. This might actually be some of the best advice, truly, that Parker Pine has ever given anyone. It's actually empowering. It's like it's like a girl talk speech. Yeah. He's like, girl, you like live your truth. You, You know, you do you. Parker Pine says, you know, I'm worried. I'm in general worried about this whole affair. And of course, Mrs. Chester thinks that he's worried that Basil is going to ruin his life. And he says, I'm not worrying about Basil. And then she responds, you're not worrying about the girl. And he says, no, I'm worrying about you. You've been squandering your birthright. And then this is a little monologue that he does, and it's worth going into because I'm going to connect it to something that Christy wrote about in, oh yes, her autobiography. So bear with me a moment. 
Parker Pine says, what are the years from 20 to 40, fettered and bound by personal and emotional relationships? That's bound to be. That's living. But later, there's a new stage. You can think, observe life, discover something about other people and the truth about yourself. Life becomes real, significant. You see it as a whole, not just one scene, the scene you as an actor are playing. No man or woman is actually himself or herself till after 45. That's when individuality has a chance. That is some life-affirming juju there that Mr. Parker Pine is gifting to Mrs. Chester. I know it feels very modern, right? It feels like, you know, you could see that on any sort of episode of Oprah or something else, right? Oh, absolutely. And as so often happens, it of course reminded me of something Christy had written about in her autobiography. And this is in one of the very last sections when she's getting nostalgic and just looking back over the years. And it's a little bit more of a global look. She's looking from a far distance as opposed to the microscopic detail that she often goes into in the autobiography, especially when it's about her childhood. This is what she writes. I have enjoyed greatly the second blooming that comes when you finish the life of the emotions and of personal relations and suddenly find at the age of 50, say, that a whole new life has opened before you, filled with things you can think about, study, or read about. You find that you like going to picture exhibitions, concerts, and the opera with the same enthusiasm as when you went at 20 or 25. For a period, your personal life has absorbed all your energies, but now you are free again to look around you. You can enjoy leisure. You can enjoy things. You are still young enough to enjoy going to foreign places though you can't perhaps put up with living quite as rough as you used to. And she goes on, but you get the idea. So she's very much putting, I think, in Parker Pine's mouth here, something that she felt herself as someone who was getting older. And, you know, this was written in uh, 1935. It's interesting that Parker Pine is saying life doesn't begin until 45, because this being written in 1935 means that it was written when Agatha Christie was, oh, gee, 45. (laughs) (laughs) Convenient. Convenient. I found it really charming. And then he just goes on to say, because Mrs. Chester says, I've been wrapped up in Basil. He's been everything to me. And Parker Pine responds, well, he shouldn't have been. That's what you're paying for now. Love him as much as you like. But you're Adela Chester, remember? A person, not just Basil's mother. Go Parker Pine. I know. Very empowering. Anyway, after that, um, he also, you know, happens to agree to talk to Basil. And as it turns out, Basil is delighted to talk to him because he's being made miserable by his mother. He loves this girl that his mom thinks is a tart. And he thinks that it would be good if Parker Pine just met her first. So Parker Pine agrees. Her name's Betty. She lives with her sister and her sister's husband, who is like a kind of weird Danish artist dude, in a pretty decrepit villa up from the beach. They're obviously art people, but Parker Pine accepts a cocktail from Betty, and Betty is much less made up than normal, and she's kind of spunky, and she's sweet, and she seems pretty smart. And she likes all the same things as Basil, and Parker Pine judges her, and she allows him to judge her. She's amused by it, almost. And I think kind of touched when Parker Pine is like, I actually think you and Basil make a good couple. And so she challenges Parker Pine to help her and Basil, not just help Mrs. Chester, or help all of them, so that this relationship isn't ruined. And Parker Pine says, okay, you know what? I'll handle it. Also need to go away for a week, but I'm intrigued. 
Which is the point at which we as, we as readers should say, uh-oh, someone's going to wake up and find themselves being held captive on a weird farm somewhere. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was my first thought. I was like, oh no, who is he going to drug and kidnap? Be very wary when you ask Parker Pine to solve your problems or you. And he's like, oh sure, I'll take care of that. I just got to run for a little bit, but I'll be back. I know. It's like you're going to end up mugged in a fancy house outside of London, you know, get tied up in a basement that floods with water and have to have like a stranger save you. It's like in my wildest fantasies, it's like cut to Mars. <laughs> you know, you just like wake up and you're like, what? Uh-oh, what happened? Parker Pine, here? what have you done? Before we get to what he did, I also was really charmed by his little test for whether or not they were suitable. Which oh, about the, wind, the window being yeah, open is it, my favorite thing. This is so vintage Parker Pine because it consists of three questions. It's very simple, very direct test. And these are the three questions. Do you sleep with your window open or shut? Do you enjoy the same kind of food? Do you like going to bed early or late? That's it. You know, reasonable enough, Kemper. No, it really is. And she even says, so she answers the questions. And even though we're not told, apparently they do line up with Basil's uh, habits. You know, she says, I sleep with the window open, that they do enjoy the same food, and that she actually does like getting up early and she gets super tired after 1030, even though she's loath to admit it to her bohemian friends and family, which is kind of funny. Right. And then she says, well, rather a superficial test, because he says, you ought to suit each other very well. And his response is, not at all. I have known seven marriages at least entirely wrecked because the husband liked sitting up till midnight and the wife fell asleep at half past nine and vice versa. And like, that was probably the main criterion for the roommate test for my freshman dorm when people went to bed. I think that was the main way that they matched people up. It's a pretty fair test. I actually know this because in a fit of ill-advised optimism for myself, I put down that I usually went to bed by 11. And mm, let's just say I usually didn't go to bed my freshman year of college at all. Or if I did, it was usually more of the three to four range. Yeah. To this day, I don't sleep well. So if I happen to be randomly awake at two o'clock in the morning, that's just, you know, a fact of life. I'm much more in line with what I wanted to be now, many, many, many years later. And it was a source of contention with my poor roommate who went to bed like clockwork, almost at, I think at nine or 10. So we were just oh off gosh. by hours and very sweet f- guy though. We got wait, along wait, well, but oof. a freshman went to bed at nine o'clock. Yeah. He was an engineer. Oh, so that explains it, it. Parker Pine is not wrong. I think if you line up and then obviously they're attracted to each other because they're already in a relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's a lot that's already lining up. So I'm with him on that test. Well, you so- know what? I actually also believe the window test is not really about the window because this is 1935. Mm-hmm. It's the temperature of the room. I think it's about the temperature of the room, and it's also just about, you know, this is a really random reference, but I'm pretty sure that in the Jeffrey Eugenides novel, The Marriage Plot, which I'm not even a big fan of, by far my least favorite of his novels, he... I um, slightly like that book. Eh, I don't like it that much, but he goes on for a while about how there are open window fresh air people and closed window shut-in people. It often connotes a difference, not only in personality, but perhaps even class. And one of the characters is very much like a window shut person and grew up as a window shut person. And another character is sort of the archetype of the fresh air and opening up a window. And it shows how they are not compatible. I am an open windows person, but I'm also a person with 
horrific allergies. <laughs> so I guess you could say I'm masochistic. <laughs> I guess I'm an open window person too. Anyway, a week passes and Parker Pine returns to the hotel Pino de Oro. I don't really know what he was doing during that week, but I guess just vacaying elsewhere on Mallorca. And uh, Betty and Mrs. Chester are talking together on the patio and they are both clearly very distressed and they see Parker Pime and they tell him that if he had never gone away, the entire world would have been better because look what happened in his absence. And down on the beach, Parker Pine sees Basil. What's going on, Catherine? Oh dear. I mean, it's not good. (laughs) Basil is with an aggressively beautiful, aggressively tarted up local You know, she's wearing, like, some heavy-duty pancake makeup. You thought Betty was bad? Well, you should see this girl. She is, like, out there in the water frolicking on the beach with apparently stage makeup, like, grease paint on. Can I just read the description? Because it it is... please do, because it is... uh, It's a lot. It is nothing short of Arlena Marshall in Evil Under the Sun. And her... It's (laughs) like the same... It's very similar. But I don't mean that as a criticism. They're both fantastic moments within the Christie canon. This is what she writes. She was dark and her figure was marvelous. No one could fail to notice the fact since she wore nothing but a single garment of pale blue crepe. She was heavily made up with ochre powder and an orange scarlet mouth, but the unguents only displayed her remarkable beauty in a more pronounced fashion. Very painted. So this aggressively made up local is named Dolores Ramona. And Basil is very clearly head over heels with her. And he's following her around on the beach like a puppy. He ignores Betty. It's terrible. And even worse, at this point, Mrs. Chester, while Parker Pine has been gone, has decided that Betty is an absolutely lovely girl. Especially, you know, in comparison to um, Dolores Ramona. So Mrs. Chester has been begging Basil to please, please stop this. And then when Parker Pine shows up, she, of course, begs Parker Pine, please intercede. And in the meantime, Betty is handling this all very well. She's being very mature about it. She's still incredibly upset, of course. But eventually, after one too many times that Basil goes off to a party with Dolores and her friends, poor Betty gives Mrs. Chester back the signet ring that Basil gave her as, I guess, the placeholder until they could go back to England and get a proper engagement ring. Because, you know what? She's calling off the engagement, Kemper. Kel Horror, it's all just fallen apart, and Parker Pine must just be so surprised by this turn of events. And He seems like, you know, every single thing is like a raised eyebrow and a look of shock. Yeah, so he agrees to go talk to Basil and Dolores, and sure enough, he comes back, and he seems to have worked his magic. He announces that Dolores is going to be leaving the island the next day. Mrs. Chester doesn't even have to pay him a penny, and it's all wonderful, but uh, this just doesn't really seem to make sense, so I think before we get into the world as it actually is, we have to wonder, is there more than meets the eye here to this situation with Mr. Parker Pine? Hmm. What do you think, Catherine? <laughs> oh, I think that all of our dear listeners and anyone who's ready, Parker Pine story that was set in England knows that Parker Pine has some associates. Mm-hmm. The story is kind of marrying the traveling Parker Pine with the Miss Lonely Hearts Parker Pine, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's not much of a mystery when it comes down to it because the second we see this glamazon on the beach 
we should know who she is. And let's just say this, Kemper. Her name is not Dolores Ramona. What? What is it? <laughs> oh, I think it might be Madeline de Sarah. Madeline DeSara, alias Dolores Ramona, alias Maggie Sayers. <laughs> <laughs> a nice girl from a, you know, middle class family who dresses properly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one. Yep. I think it might be our old, old friend, Madeline DeSara. We can guess that the second she shows up. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think an astute or perhaps even conscious reader <laughs> might realize <laughs> that that Dolores Ramona. Do, do is you have a pulse? <laughs> And are reading the story. Yes. But I was actually heartened by Parker Pine's machinations here because what he's doing is similar to what we've seen him do in other cases to such horrendous effect and quite honestly offensive effect from a 21st century viewpoint when it comes to relations between the sexes. But it's a little different here what he does. A little not as bad. What does he do, Catherine? So he called Madeline to Sarah after the conversation with Betty and he brings her to Mallorca and he disappears for a minute. And then, you know what? He actually tells both Basil and Betty about this plan. Right. And that's why it's not as bad. (laughs) Right. So the only person being fooled here is Mrs. Chester. The woman who he told in the heart of the story that she needs to move on a little bit and live her own life. He is pulling a fast one on her for her own good, which, yes, is that patronizing? Absolutely. Is it a little obnoxious? Yes, but I find it a smaller pill to swallow than many of the larger pills we've had to swallow, especially in those earlier Parker Pines. Well, and also we know that Mrs. Chester is like unreasonably judging Betty and that Betty was being reactive to that and that Parker Pine can see that Betty and Basil are good. So, you know, he's essentially pulling a little bit of a Papa Poirot. Yeah, he's bringing two lovebirds together who should be together. Right. You know, we're meant to believe that except for one certain thing, which we can talk about in a second, this is all good, right? Right. And I mean, playing a trick on a mother so that she will realize that the woman his son likes is actually the right woman for her and be happy with their union. And like a nice and decent person who she likes. Right, is much more forgivable than playing a trick on a woman who says, I'm bored, and then wakes up in a farm. (laughs) Drugged on a farm. Drugged on a farm, being called a different name with like a birthmark (laughs) put on her. All of her money put in trust because she's in an insane asylum. (laughs) Until she finally, through Stockholm Syndrome, decides that her captor actually was correct Uh. and that she never wants to be free of her cage. (laughs) We are not in that world, luckily. So, you know, in in that, I think it's taking bits and pieces of those Miss Lonely Heart section and marrying them with the more palatable traveling sections. This is kind of a whole Parker Pine, a complete Parker Pine, but also an enjoyable Parker Pine, one that I was certainly delighted to read from beginning to end, even with this slightly sour little button, Catherine. What do we get at the end here? Oh, yeah, because of course we couldn't have it end just nicely. Basil comes to the ferry that's taking Parker Pine and Madeline de Sarah away from Mallorca. He, you know, thanks Parker Pine profusely. And then he also kind of hesitantly is like, you know, I'd actually really like to also thank Madeline for her work because she did such a brilliant job. 
<laughs> and Parker Pine's like, you know what? She went to bed. I will let her know. And he says, well, you know, when we come back to London, I could also stop by and like give my regards to her. And Parker Pine says, no, you know what? We're going to America, not going back to London. Don't look us up. Yeah. And then, you know, Parker Pine goes and knocks on Madeline DeSera's cabin door and said that uh, Basil had the usual slight attack of Madelineitis. He'll get over it in a day or two, but you are rather distracting. But you know what? It's not as bad as uh, some of the unintended consequences of injecting Madeline Sarah into the situation as we've seen in some of those earlier stories. He was a little taken with Madeline Sarah, but he is going to go back to Betty. He will get over it. It will be fine. Right. And hopefully, and hopefully Madeline they- Sarah goes and on to her correspondence courses and something or, you know, I know we have big <laughs> no. plans for Madeline Sarah. <laughs> I mean, Madeline Sarah should have like a remarkable career and, you know, that's all there is to it. I want her to be, I don't even know what I want. I just, whatever I want her to do, I want her to be the best at it and to be fabulously successful and wealthy in her own right. And yeah. I just want, you know, I like to imagine that maybe she goes on to have a career through Parker Pines connections with the foreign service doing something brilliant and daring and then maybe she like invents something. Yeah, she's a little a little heady Lamar. I get I sort so. of um Joan from Mad Men vibes from her as well, you know? Yeah, both of those excellent. Great. You know, all the best wishes from Atlanta Sarah. Start her own business, just become, you know, a successful entrepreneur, put those brains to good use. In any case, that is the end of the story. And to say I'm not mad at it does not express enough how much I actually did enjoy this one. How did you feel, Catherine? Oh, I mean, I think it's actually kind of sweet. Yeah. So, but, but true to the spirit of Parker Pine. And that's not easy to pull off, to be sweet and yet true to Parker Pine. I know, because we know that Parker Pine can be toxic. So. <laughs> yes, he can. Parker Pine stories, they really are such outliers, similar to the Mr. Quinn stories, but just diverting, usually. I mean, yes, we joke a lot and we gripe a lot more than we probably should about the gender or kind of sex relations, especially in those early stories, because they really are of their time. But for the most part, I think these Parker Pine stories are really diverting, and I'm glad that we've covered them and that we still have one more in our future. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've talked about it before, but I do still think that there is a world in which I would like to see some adaptations of these. Yeah, me too. Beyond those two Agatha mm-hmm. Christie hour adaptations, which right. were perfectly fine with Maurice Denham. But I think Parker Pine deserves to have his day on the small screen at the very yeah, least. I mean, as disconcerting as I find some of the, you know, Miss Lonely Hearts style stories as an episodic thing, I think they're very adaptable and will be interesting to watch. Yeah. And I think there's a way you could either update those stories or at least present them in such a way, perhaps with (laughs) irony and a sort of knowingness that you can get across everything Christie's trying to with those stories, but, you know, make it palatable for a 21st century audience. I think you could do interesting things with those stories, producing them today. Yeah, I agree. And on that note, I guess we're going to say goodbye to him for a little while. 
We shall. We shall. We'll say goodbye to Parker Pine until we cover that final story. But, you know, we have so much more to cover, including in our next episode, which is a very exciting special episode. It is Thanksgiving next week, which for those of us in the U.S. is a time to gather around with family and friends in addition to stuffing our faces with a maximum of calories. And we figured what more appropriate episode to post for Thanksgiving week than a conversation with one of the dearest friends of this podcast, mystery and thriller novelist, including, of course, Poirot continuation novels, Sophie Hanna. Which we are so excited about. So excited. We talk about her all the time. We had our first interview with her at least a year ago, if not more. And we spoke not only about the Poirot continuation novels that she writes, but just her many, many thoughts on Christie's novels and where they rank. So we are going to be having another one of our rollicking conversations. Let's be be honest. Sophie, like many of our other dear listeners, might have had a few comments on our rankings. Oh yeah, no, I think that this is going to be (laughs) a spirited debate about our rankings and her arguments for doing some reordering and I can't wait to hear it because for obvious reasons we we always want to hear her opinion but she's also just such a lover of Christy. Like, I just feel like she's a fellow fan in the same way. She's obsessed as much as we are and it's just such a joy to talk about Christy titles It's an absolute delight And also, I think we're going to make some time to talk about her new thriller, which will be out at the beginning of 2020. And I think it's going to be fun to talk about just the mystery genre in general, which we know that all of our readers love talking about, too. And we should just note that our next novel after that will be They Came to Baghdad, a mid-career thriller title, if I'm not mistaken. So we'll be interesting to cover that one. Well, that is all for this time. In the meantime, you can always contact us, first of all, on our Patreon site. That is over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha and our Instagram handle is at all about Agatha. And we've been getting a bunch of ratings and reviews and we always want more because the more that we get, the easier it is for people to find us, the better our standings within the various platforms that you use to listen to this podcast. And we'd love for more people to find us. So please, if you haven't yet, just take a moment and rate and review us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.